Refugia, a podcast about renewal. Refugia are places of shelter where life endures in times of crisis. From out of these small sanctuaries, life re-emerges and the world is renewed. We're exploring what it means for people of faith to be people of Refugia. How can we create safe places of flourishing micro-countercultures where we gain strength and spiritual capacity to face the challenges ahead. I'm Deborah Reinstra, professor of English at Calvin University, and this is Refugia. It doesn't really matter. Wherever you are, simply dig in. Get to know it, the people, the animals, the trees, whatever, and put down roots and make it a home place. Hi, everyone. In this episode of the Refugia podcast, I head over to Hope College to talk Bible and theology with Steve Bama Prediger. All of the people I interview for this podcast are connected in some way to Calvin University, and Steve has long been a great friend to Calvin, even if he does teach at a rival college. In this episode, we start by looking at examples of Refugia in the Bible. Steve has been thinking and writing for a long time about how the Bible guides our human responsibilities toward the rest of creation. And he's a winsome and wise thinker in the field of eco-theology. So be ready because we are going to throw around some Hebrew words. Steve has also done a lot of work on community and virtues, and those ideas add a lot to our exploration of refugia too. If you haven't listened to the first episode or two yet, it might be helpful to do that, but it's okay to just go for it and listen to this episode right now too. As always, thanks for listening. Today I'm talking with Steve Bauma Prediger, the Leonard and Marjorie Mass Professor of Reformed Theology at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Steve is going to help us ponder some biblical examples of refugia, and we're going to get into some eco-theology. Hey Steve, thanks for talking with me today. Great to be with you. So people think that Hope and Calvin are these <laughs> ferocious rivals, and I think maybe that's true on basketball days, basketball games. But here I am in your office on Hope's campus, and I'm feeling okay. Good. Yeah. Um, actually, we have a lot of collegiality between Calvin and Hope professors. There is. And, a yeah. lot more than people realize. Yeah. Um, the professors get along. I'm not sure about the basketball teams. <laughs> and we keep looping you into Calvin projects because you've done such great work in Reformed theology and ecology. So I wonder if we can consider you an honorary Calvin prof. Today. Sure can. Okay? Yep. okay, great, great. So let's talk about uh, your 2001 book published by Baker Academic called For the Beauty of the Earth. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful book. Um, it's intended for a broad audience wondering about how the Bible and theological reflection can guide us in caring for the earth. And it does so many really helpful things. It gives this background. It works through some key scripture passages It sets forth an ecological theology, as you call it. It presents and analyzes arguments for caring for the... It's this fantastic book. And so I'm just wondering what kind of response you had. I feel like you said everything that needs to be said. (laughs) So I'm just wondering why. Well, it's been gratifying. I wrote that book on my first sabbatical way back in 2000, 2001. First edition book is over there. Then they asked for a... A new edition, and I spent a second sabbatical doing that, and so the revised second edition came out in 2010, mm-hmm. and it's it's still selling. A number of people, I don't know who, but uh, well, some people I do, but uh, <laughs> uh, 
people use it in classes. I use it in a couple of my classes, Earth and Ethics, Guide Earth Ethics, Ecological Theology and Ethics. I, I wrote it to be a kind of primer or introductory book dealing with environmental science at a basic level. Yeah. But, you know, eco-literacy is the first chapter. Do we know where our water comes from, where our garbage goes, among other things? And then the second chapter is all about ecological degradations, what my students call the thoroughly depressing chapter, <laughs> with all the charts and graphs. And that's why primarily I was asked to do a revised version. That sure. data had gotten dated right. the first time around. So I really did a big update on that chapter. And then asked the question, why are we in this eco-mess? What does the Bible say? Chapter 4, I look at five texts in particular, retranslate them from the Hebrew and Greek. Chapter 5 is the theology and the ethics. Chapter 6 is virtue ethics. More on that in a minute. Because yes, right. in my new book, which I have a copy of, Great. Good. Uh, we'll get to is, that. is a sort of a, um, a sequel to For the Beauty of the Earth because it takes that one chapter, which is relatively um, unique back in 2001 when the for the Beauty first came out, and now basically blows it up into a whole book Great. On, its, on its own merits. And then, as you say, there's a chapter, the second to last chapter, where I try to tie everything together and say, here are 10 reasons, whether you're religious or not, Christian or not, 10 reasons to be a good earth keeper to care yeah. for creation. So because I think the book, and I wrote it at like a 12th grade high school level, you know, or, or freshman, first year college student level, because of the accessibility of the book and the fact that it covers a lot of territory. A lot of people have, have used it Good. in classes. And more should. It's really helpful. So let's talk about that word earthkeeping, which um, is the subject of your chapter in the Beyond Stewardship book, right. which a group of us worked on last summer, and that's coming out summer 2019. Right. Um, so let's talk about that word earthkeeping, this positive, beautiful word that I'm very persuaded by your argument that that's a great word for us to use to express the right relationship between human beings and the other parts of earth creation. But now we're facing this world that's deeply and even irreparably damaged. So I'm, I'm wondering if even keeping is too positive at this point. <laughs> <laughs> because it, the word keeping, I know it has a Hebrew basis, and maybe you'll tell us about that in a little, in a little bit, but it yeah. implies maintaining a status quo when what we need really is repair and reconciliation and restoration, even just survival. So I'm wondering if this idea of refugia helps us find an aspect of keeping that emphasizes that restoration. In other words, does earth keeping right now as a practice, compel us to become a people of refugia? And if so, what would that mean to you? That's a great question. Uh, Earthkeeping is uh, a neologism. It was coined by Lauren Wilkinson, Cal DeWitt, a whole group of folks who spent a year at Calvin College yes. back in 1978 or 9, I forget exactly, but the book came out in 1980 with Erdman's publishing house. And it's a great word. I've loved it since that book first came out. It, the a second edition of that book, Earthkeeping in the 90s, was published about a dozen years later. And uh, I like it because of its biblical resonance. It does, in fact, capture, I think, um, what I call the Chicago cop car verse, Genesis 2.15. <laughs> what? Well, I lived in Chicago for seven years. I smiled every time I saw the side of a Chicago police car because it says to serve and protect. In a yes. city known for its political corruption, among other things, great city, don't get me wrong, 
<laughs> I love Chicago. We were just there a couple weekends ago visiting. Chicago listeners, we love it. But but uh, I was I was uh, when we moved to Chicago for me to go to grad school at U of Chicago back in 1987. I quickly learned within a month or two from Chicago natives that. The motto here is vote early, vote often, you yeah. know, even the dead vote, usually more than once. <laughs> so it, it always struck me as this wonderful irony that here in this city known for Al Capone's legacy and so on, we have police cars that quote Bible verses. And very few people know this. Serve and protect is, a, I think, the best translation of avad and shamar, the two verbs used in Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the Adam, the human, and put the Adam in the garden, i.e. the earth, to avad and shamar, to serve and protect. Now, it usually isn't translated that way, but that's what it's about. Avad is the uh, verbal form. The nominative is evad, which is slave or servant. Evad Yahweh is a term used hundreds of times in the Hebrew Bible, Christian Old Testament. Slave of God, servant of God. So we are to serve and protect now, um, to your question, yeah, do we need also repar- repair work, mm-hmm. restoration? Uh, clearly we do, especially given the kind of degradations I outline in Chapter 2 of For the Beauty of the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, which reminded me when I, I looked at that, I thought about repair, there's a wonderful expression in Hebrew, tikkun olam, yes. you know, repair of... of uh, the earth of all things, uh, it's the universe. yeah of the universe, and um, so there's you know a wonderful Jewish tradition there that's very similar. So yeah, keeping doesn't just mean preserving like pickles in a jar. Cal DeWitt <laughs> used that metaphor many times. It's not preservation as in pickles, but it's it's helping the whole world, human and non-human, to flourish. Mm-hmm. And often these days that means repair work. Yeah. Not just preservation, mm-hmm. as in keeping things the same, because any any introduction to environmental science or ecology, you know that the Earth is always changing. Yes. Change is not a bad thing, but what kind of change? Who who benefits? And the who there? How big is your who? Is it just humans, <laughs> or is it all creatures? So, so. Earth keeping, I. Involved with owls, right? How big is your hoop? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to protect the owls. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's it's a great question, and I still argue, as you know from being part of the Beyond Stewardship book, that earth keeping is a is a broad enough term to encompass all of those sorts yeah. of things. So I'm wondering if refugia could be to come underneath it <clears throat> as a kind of category that helps us think about what keeping means when we're in a state of crisis. Right. Um, I wonder about the beautiful Hebrew word shomer, which is related to keeping. <coughs> mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm thinking of? Where, oh, shamar. Yeah. Yeah, where, where keeping, shomer is like the, the noun form, if I'm understanding this correctly, and it's the word that's used quite a bit in Psalm 121. Oh, yeah. About Right. God watching over. Yeah. This idea of keeping as watching over, or it's even the word used to keep the law. Mm-hmm. Right? So that keeping is is about dwelling with, being with. Um, yeah, so it's it's much richer than the English word Indeed. to keep. Well, ironic blessing in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Yes. How often have we heard that as a benediction? Many people yeah. and liturgically oriented worship. Keep shamar. Yeah. It doesn't mean pickle you. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? It doesn't mean put you in a jar. One would hope. Bless you and keep you. Barak mm-hmm. and and uh, Shamar. Yeah. So it's that same idea of keep, of of help you flourish. Mm-hmm. Do what's needed. Mm-hmm. Repair work if necessary. Preservation work if necessary. So it's that. That's the sense of keeping I'm trying to mm-hmm. capture. Yeah, Psalm 121 would be another example. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's think about examples of refugia in the scriptures. Maybe we could start with the Old Testament. So these are moments where God preserves a small remnant as a way of creating a little seed that can then flourish later, that can spread and flourish later. And so I'm thinking maybe, first of all, of the story of Noah. Yeah, that's the classic example that comes to mind yeah, for me. First comes to mind. a refugium? Yeah. And if so, what is it about that story? What can we learn from that story? Well, I translate that and comment on it in For the Beauty of the Earth, Chapter 4. Um, it's a wonderful story. Actually, my second book is called Assessing the Ark, and it's a mm-hmm. Christian perspective on the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. The, Ark, the Endangered Species Act, signed into law by Richard Nixon yeah. in 1973, um, is an example of an ark. We preserve, try to preserve species uh, in a way that they will flourish in the future. Well, the, the ark story in Genesis 6 through 9 is, is a clear early example of that. Yeah. Um, so, so bad was the uh, violence of humans, says the text in, early in chapter 6, that uh, God determines to wipe them off the face of the planet. But he finds a Sadiq, a righteous man, mm-hmm. Noah, mm-hmm. and changes his mind. It's an interesting passage in lots of different ways. Yeah. God changes his mind because he finds a, a, a man of righteousness and justice and mercy. But it's not just the humans. This isn't the point I make in the book and with my students. Um, the ark is a refuge mm-hmm. for humans and all these other creatures. And, and the creatures are to be in the ark in such a way that they would be able to reproduce. That's the either mm-hmm. two by two or seven by seven. The text varies there. We need a little genetic diversity. <laughs> <laughs> also food. So yeah. the whole point being that God God makes provisions for mm-hmm. this refuge to be, as you mm-hmm. were describing, a kind of microcosm mm-hmm. that would that would uh, withstand the deluge that is to follow. And the pivot point in that whole narrative, chapter six or nine, is eight one, where God, God sends the wind, and the wind is the ruach, Genesis one two, the ruach yeah. of God, the spear, the wind of God comes, and pushes back the water, hmm. and that's the the pivot point in that whole story. That then this refuge becomes the the seedbed, as it were, for the repopulation of a. Of a cleansed and pure, kind of purified home planet. Yeah. So there's some problems with that that Indeed. we should probably address. <laughs> um, right. So this is the refugium of the ark comes in a moment of terrible destruction and crisis. Right. Um, and then when it's all over and the seedbed, by the way, I love the Jewish tradition that Mrs. Noah. <laughs> <laughs> was good with plants right. and brought along seedlings and seeds. Um, that's another way in which the ark can be thought of as a, a, a kind of mythical representation of refugia. Right. 
um, a refugium. Anyway, so when it spills out and, and renews, so to speak, the face of the earth, um, everything's not perfect. No. Unfortunately, sin comes along. Yeah, well, Noah has a little yeah. too much uh, wine or beer or homebrew or whatever, right. and things go bad pretty soon after that, yeah. according to the text. I mean, who can blame him? But really. <laughs> <laughs> Going that long in a boat with all those animals? I know. And you got to feed him somehow, the and the smells. Where do you put the poop? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't need a, uh, a drink yeah, or two after all that? Right. I mean, I, I guess the, the point is it's not really idealism, but it's a, a sense that God can work from these remnants, can renew, yeah. that there can be regrowth. Life can renew itself. Um, what are some other Bible stories that make you think about or through which we can explore this idea? Well, the, the first ones from the Old Testament, in addition to the first one right away was the Noah story in Genesis. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other ones, the next one that came to mind were a couple psalms. I mean, there are all these nature psalms. Yeah. You know, the psalms are the song book, the prayer book, the poetry book. They're almost all poems in Hebrew, and you, you miss all that in translation. Um, psalm 104, what I call the symphony of creation psalm. Mm-hmm. Um, all these animals are mentioned. Humans are mentioned. Adam, only twice, sort of in passing. Yeah. Just part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Or the biosphere, and all these creatures. This is emphasized even more in Psalm 148. They all have their own creaturely way of praising God. Yeah. We're deaf and dumb to most of that most of the time, but all creatures praise God. Maybe not using words like we do, but other ways. So, but this sense that all creation gives praise to God, and um, again, those psalms often get overlooked, mm-hmm. and there are. I don't know, 15, 20% of the psalms have something to do with the natural world. And, and all these lament psalms, too. I mean, there are all these different yeah. different kinds of psalms that I think people don't realize. But 104, 148, there are a number of others that immediately come to mind. So they're not stories in the same way that Noah is a narrative, but they're biblical texts that speak about the earth, um, in some cases, being harmed and it's lament. In other cases, it's it's praise and celebration, and uh, and, and it's all kinds of other creatures giving praise, not just us. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy four, five, and six comes to mind. You've got the ten best ways to live, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, uh, of course, but also the Shema. Here, Israel, Lord God is one, and Bereshit um, bara Elohim, um, so on. So. Um, Let's think about that one a moment, because the law was given to the Israelites uh, in the desert. Right. So they've been extracted. A moving refuge, as it were. Yeah, right. A a refugium with rough conditions. Right. But the idea of separating them, and this continues in in the ideas of holiness separation in ancient Israel, the idea of separating them is to create a a different form, a different social form um, to teach these, let's call them virtues, right? and to create, once again, a kind of a group apart that can then be a witness and bless the nations. Well, that's the key part. Yeah. That's what's often forgotten yeah. in all the covenant language from Genesis 12 on throughout Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, etc., is you are chosen by God and blessed to be a blessing. Yeah. The Israelites were not chosen because they were better 
pure, holier. But for some strange reason, God says, I'm choosing you as a means, a vehicle to bless all the earth. And And of course, they get that wrong again and again. (laughs) Sure. Don't we all? Just read, you know, the book of kings. (laughs) How many good (laughs) kings are there? Or judges. But yeah, Yeah. but the the point is, it is like they're like a, a. um, a human refuge, yeah. refugium in that sense, that they're the seedbed to be a blessing for mm-hmm. all creation. Mm-hmm. And though they get it wrong, God sticks with them right. again and again. So it's not about a bunker. It's not about being hidden. Right. It's about being retrained, so to speak, um, and then spreading that um, everywhere to be a blessing. And back to Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. like five and six, six is the Shema, five is the Ten Commandments, four, emphasize chapter four, don't forget all that you've learned while you've been a wandering, wayfaring people in the wilderness. Mm. Don't forget when you come to inherit the promised land. Remember that you too were a people who were poor and needy, so therefore be generous and hospitable to um, migrants, to people, yeah. the foreigners among you, the sojourners. Be the people of refugees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's this interesting thing going on with the exile and, you know, then mm. the promised land. Mm-hmm. And of course, the temptation once they enter land is to say, ah, we're here, it's ours, keep everyone else out. When in fact, there's this constant reminder, remember that you too were a wandering, wayfaring, sojourning people mm. in the wilderness. So be hospitable to those. Mm-hmm. So the litmus test, you know, this is all over in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, of how you're doing is as a culture, as a society, is not the gross domestic product, or you know, or the stock exchange, or whatever yeah. the equivalents back then were. Yeah, it's how are you treating three important groups, mm-hmm. right? The widows, the orphans, and the quote sojourners. Yes. Code word for the immigrants, the migrants. Mm-hmm. Because they were migrants. Yes. How are you doing? How are those three people, those marginal groups doing? Mm. That's how you judge whether you've had a good year or decade or century or not. It's not about camels. Yeah, Yeah, right. How many camels? (laughs) Or goats. Yeah. (laughs) What about um, examples in the New Testament? I suppose we could think of, this is such a common theme in Reformed theology that that themes from the stories of Israel become the themes that we apply to the church. Right. But what might be some other examples in the New Testament of refugia stories? Well, lots of things come to mind. You can pick out different parables. Um, Mm. I think of Luke 15 is the classic example, the three parables of the lost, culminating with the parable so-called of the prodigal son. But it's really the lost sons, plural, or if you want an yes. even better, more accurate translation, the baccalaureate address I gave at Hope was mm-hmm. a sermon on this, the parable of the running father. Mm-hmm. And I'm borrowing from Ken Bailey's work, extensive anthropologist, biblical scholar. It's not really about the sons, either one. It's about this incredibly gracious, hospitable father mm-hmm. who violates all social conventions and runs to both the younger and the older, goes out yeah. to the younger and the older son and says, all that I have is yours. Mm. You maybe didn't realize that, but you're a beloved son, regardless of your wayward ways, whether it's the petulant son throwing a tantrum, the, the older son or the younger son who's you know, supposedly the one that the story's about. No, it's about that father. So, I mean, that's, that's a parable that, that speaks to this idea of, of Christians being bodies of yeah. the church, manifest as a refugium. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. of sorts. Yeah. Wherever you are, big city, wilderness, mm-hmm. geographically in one sense, it doesn't matter. We are mm-hmm. to be like that running father. Mm-hmm. So you can think of, I think of parables like that and Jesus' behavior, but then you've got all this, well, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of it, you know, all the Beatitudes. That's a classic place where the Christian community sees that as ideals to live up to. Um, Luke 15, the, the uh, farewell uh, address in John, John 14 through 17, oh, yes. where the new commandment I give you, not that you love your neighbor like you, but you love other people the way I love you. Jesus sort of turns the screws, <laughs> ups the ante if it's yeah. not high enough. Say, love people, other people the way I loved you. And all those I am's, seven of them, biblical number of perfection, a couple of them show up in the farewell discourse, those yeah. chapters in the middle of John or near the end of John. I am the vine, you are the branches. So, I mean, those those aren't stories, technically, the way that the Noah story, the sure. flood story. Not but narratives quite the same. But, yeah. but those are some gospel texts that come to mind that I think help us, instruct us on how to be a... A refuge or refugium yeah. uh, as a um, mm-hmm. as a Christian community. So I think two things I've, I'm hearing from our discussion of the scripture is that the, a refugium is self-replicating. Yeah. Um, it 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 expands and then creates a place for others to come in, and also that when applied to the church, a refugium is not a place where we just wait. We go out right. to bring people into that space. Um, really good reminder. Let's talk about virtues. And this, as you say, uh, began with a wonderful chapter in For the Beauty of the Earth, yep. where you asked the question, well, what kind of people ought we be if we're going to be in right relationship with the rest of creation? Right. And then you posit all these virtues. It's both beautiful and exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Should characterize people of faith. Virtues like, and I'm just giving a tiny sample. There are seven pairs. Yeah. So self-restraint, humility, wisdom, serenity. It's this very high calling. And if if refugia are micro countercultures where we learn, maybe unlearn, and then learn and relearn how to thrive mm-hmm. in God's good purpose. And then we let that wisdom spill out and spread. So how can we create refugia where we practice those virtues, where it's a healthy virtue ecology? So I wonder if you could give us some examples of where and how that actually happens. That's a great question. That chapter, when I wrote it almost 20 years ago now, very little was done in the field of environmental virtue ethics. Much had been done in virtue ethics, a lot of work had been done in environmental or ecological ethics, but not the Mm. conjunction of the two, and virtually nothing by Christians at that point. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to say more work has been done. There's a whole field now called environmental virtue ethics, E-V-E, Eve for short. Wait a minute, it has an acronym to it. It has an acronym to it. Nice. One sign that a field actually, I guess, has a certain status or has reached a certain point, you have an acronym. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there is, um, in addition to my new book, which will be out early 2020, there is another book by two Christian scholars on Christian ecological or environmental virtue ethics. Actually, I did an endorsement for the book. When I first got it, I thought, oh, no, I've been scooped. Oh, you know? yes. I was working Academics on my book. nightmare. Yeah, yeah. but uh, fortunately, 
you know, it's a very good book, but we're sort of doing different things, or some things similarly, but different enough that it's not. I went ahead with my book, and you know, there are some similarities, but also no, it's some a neighborhood differences. So, yeah, chapter six of of um, for the beauty on virtues, there were seven pairs, fourteen total, with their corresponding vices. Mm-hmm. What I've done with the new book, Earth Keeping and Character, Exploring a Christian Ecological Vir- Virtue Ethic, is focus on eight. Okay, so we're down from 14 to eight. Yes, we okay, are. smaller task. Living with amazement and modesty, mm-hmm. so wonder and humility. Mm-hmm. And there's debate over whether wonder is actually a virtue or not. I argue that it is. Mm. Humility, of course, is a virtue, but not for the ancient Greeks. That was a vice for Plato and Aristotle, but mm. it's key virtue for Christians. Living with strength of mind and discernment, self-control and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Solid ground there, both two of the four cardinal virtues for Plato and Aristotle. Living with respect and care, justice and love. Every religion in the world that I've studied, those two, they may go by different names, but those two are absolutely pivotal, foundational. Justice, justice and love. And, love. Mm-hmm. and living with fortitude and expectation courage and hope. Mm. So I've got all four of Plato and Aristotle's cardinal virtues, and I've got two of the three theological virtues, so-called, faith, hope, and love. I don't talk about faith. The earlier version of this book was longer, and I cut some stuff out, including a chapter on faith and some other virtues. Anyway, but we've got hope and love. And they're in that particular order, starting with wonder and humility, ending with courage Mm. and hope. In each case, I open the chapter with a story, and I end the chapter with a story, usually the story of someone I know, an embodiment of one or the other of those virtues. Since moral exemplars figure prominently, whether you're looking again at ancient Greek and Roman virtue theory, or the Middle Ages and Christian virtue theory, or contemporary virtue theory, we we often strive to embody certain virtues and extinguish certain vices because we see people in our lives. Uh, yes. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, coaches, teachers, you know, parents, hopefully, uh, who embody one virtue or another. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we say, I, I need to be more like that person. Yeah. So in each chapter, I give examples of mm-hmm. that. In the last chapter, and this is the main point, Last chapter is called Digging In, Becoming a Person of Character. What I do is I, I simply, I think there are five or six or seven examples of programs and people who um, that cultivate virtues. Yeah. And I start by talking about Camp Fowler and my friend Kent and how this Christian summer camp in upstate yeah. New York is um, a camp that um, cultivates virtues. Uh, Future world and local leaders in training here, quote-unquote. That's <laughs> a sign as you enter the camp. Nice. And I give lots of examples from how they run their kitchen and the vegetarian fair. They have their own garden. Mm-hmm. This is on acidic Adirondack soil. It's not uh, easy yeah. to grow food on that. To outdoor adventure programs, to no electronic devices, to all kinds of ways that they are, mm-hmm. with most campers not realizing it, cultivating certain yeah. virtues and trying to extinguish 
certain vices. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Little Hawks Preschool here in West Michigan, run by a former student of mine, Travis Williams, is the head of the Outdoor Discovery Center in Makatawa Greenway. They have a preschool program. It's bursting at the seams with kids, and they're outdoor, mm. outdoors most of the time, all year round, including the winter. Stream School is another example. That's a middle school project in Hamilton, Michigan, just near here, mm -hmm. also facilitated and organized by the Outdoor Discovery Center McIntyre Greenway. I talk about my Adirondack Matrim course and the ways that I very intentionally, again, no electronic devices for the eight days that we're out backpacking mm -hmm. and canoeing. You leave your watches, your smartphones, all that stuff behind. Yeah. The Creation Care Study Program is a study abroad program. Belize, New Zealand, lots of students from Calvin, mm -hmm. Hope, and elsewhere have been in that program. I mentioned some other examples. Lauren and Mary Ruth Wilkinson, mm -hmm. old friends of mine who live in, in British Columbia. So the last chapter of this book yeah, great. gives lots of different examples of ways that people in their own lives and in their work life mm -hmm. uh, have intentionally worked to cultivate certain ecological virtues. Yeah. So these are virtues in connection with ecology in particular. Right. Yeah. So um, what about obstacles or challenges that we face right now in creating these places of refugia? Yeah. As that, people of faith in particular. That's a great question. And in thinking about that, I reread uh, the last two chapters in Beyond Homelessness, a book that Brian Walsh and I spent 10 years writing. It was published... Yeah. Ten years ago, because we talk about that in terms of modernity and postmodernity, mm -hmm. and I think one of the biggest obstacles or challenges in creating refugia is, on the one hand, this would be the temptation of modernity to have a kind of bunker mentality. Yes, you know, to is isolate yourself, protect yourself from the world, mm -hmm. and you know, yeah, we're a refuge, and you know. Darn, if you're, you're going to break down the doors and get us, we're going to just maintain our, our yeah. purity, our isolation. Safety. Safety, hunker yeah. down when all chaos mm -hmm. breaks loose, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, whether ecological or cultural or whatever, mm -hmm. we're going to be safe. Yeah. Kind and of that the... contains the word refuse, yeah. which in English, it's not the same root, but it has that oral right. connection, right, to refuse. And it's true, there's a certain amount of that right. in creating a refugium. That's why your yeah. point earlier about a refugium properly understood is has open doors. Mm -hmm. Think of Revelation 21, 22. Mm -hmm. the, this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven to earth has walls, but the doors are always open. Mm -hmm. It's like a cell. There's a membrane there, but it's permeable. Nice. So there's, there's, there's a, a place but it's open and and hospitable. But that's that's the temptation of modernity is the hunker down mentality. The temptation of postmodernity is that sort of endless mobility, right? They're always that we're homeless. We don't know what a home is because we've never had that experience. And and you think that yeah, there there are no boundaries, no barriers. No, no ways to demarcate this community from some other community. This is where I think about certain Mennonite communities I've been a part of are helpful there because it, it, they're very clear. Think about one in Belize, for example, where I used to teach uh, and I've stayed overnight and got a sense of this old order Amish community. They're very clear about being pacifists, for example, and about not going along with the local government because of their faith when need be. So 
so there's a boundary there in a sense often the postmodern you know every anything goes uh, people who have no home and no, there's no goal for any sort of home in the future that um that too isn't that that's not a refuge yeah if if there isn't any sense of this is a particular community yeah so that's sort of the temptation on the other end of the extreme so how do we the image we use, Brian and I use, is sojourners. How are we sojourners? So we have a home, but it's open, hospitable, and the ultimate home is not any home we have here. As much as we invest in getting to know where we are, you know, in being eco-literate and all that kind of stuff, important as it is, but the home that we look for is that is that home described in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, of God's new Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth and the earth being renewed. So how do we how do we live as Christian communities, part of a larger thing called the church, in such a way that we get to know our home place, including the eco-literacy I've talked about, so we know how to care for it properly, but do so in a way that doesn't have this hunker down, keep everyone else who isn't like us out yeah. mentality. Yeah. That's that's the challenge. And I see, you know, examples of that concretely in the Christian Reformed Churches and RCA, sure. Reformed Church in America and other denominations, Protestant, Roman Catholic. How do we maintain our distinctiveness and not get sort of washed into some generic yeah. something, and yet in a way that is hospitable and open and and um, attractive yeah. to people who are homeless, the postmodern nomads we describe mm-hmm. in our book who who would love to find a home, people who provide a sense of meaning and identity and so on. Yeah, yeah. So those, I think, are sort of the extremes of the challenges. How do we carve out that via media, that middle way there that of a community that has identity yeah. um, but is open and welcoming and hospitable? Yeah, that's the daily challenge, the yeah. daily balance. You know, so we, we live in a culture of increasing homelessness of different kinds, ecological homelessness being one of them. I'm an Australian friend who no longer feels at home in his home country because mm-hmm. of climate change. Yeah, and I've talked truly. to other people since then. That was some years ago who were feeling the same thing. I don't feel at home in my geographic home because things have changed in certain ways. And there are people who are completely losing their geographic yeah, home. Yeah, right. Yeah, their ancestral home. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do we provide a refuge in the sense in which you're talking about it? Not a hunker down escape from the world, but a yeah. place where you can be refreshed and renewed and where can, we can do together do the kind of repair work mm. psychologically, sociologically, ecologically yeah. that we need to do mm-hmm. to uh, feel again at home in the proper sense uh, in our place. And it seems like one of the things we're discovering here in this conversation is that a refugium has to be particular and rooted. Right. Which is difficult when uh, our places are changing and more people are going to have to be more nomadic. Yeah. um, Because they're losing the places where they're rooted. Right. So they need to find other places and those places need to be provided. Uh, What are your places of refugia right now? Tanaya, the great Native American chief. That's a lake named after him. I got to camp there. I was helping a friend from California teach a wilderness course for eight days and then tacked on a four-day 
solo trip. So I, and I chose Yosemite because I really don't know it very well, even though we lived in California for four years. Um, but that's just one example. The Boundary Waters, Canoe Area Wilderness in northern Minnesota is a kind of refuge place for me where I go to commune with the, the beavers and the bears and the moose. You know, <laughs> don't hardly ever see moose or bear up there. I don't anyway. But um, that's sort of a luxury of someone who can take the time and money to do those kinds sure. of things. Mm -hmm. um, for me, West Michigan has become a kind of uh, refuge. We have a wonderful larger community, we, my family, part of a group now for, I don't know, 15 or almost 18 years of eight different families in the core city that kind of raise our kids together. Hmm. And um, being at a place now, I had hope for 25 years, lots of good friends and good memories here. Yeah. Uh, Wendell Bear, I think, gets it right. There's no particular place. I mean, some people are city dwellers. They love cities. I lived in big cities for 13 years, Toronto, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, other people, after a day in a big city, they just want to go back to some rural place or suburban place. Barry's point is, it doesn't really matter. Wherever you are, simply dig in. Get to know it, the people, the animals, the trees, whatever, and put down roots and make it a place, a home place yeah. for you. It could be Brooklyn, where my oldest daughter lives, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. New York. could be Holland, Michigan. could be any yeah. part of the world. Yeah, that's where the repair begins, where yeah. you are. Start repairing the world where you are. Yeah. And it could be anywhere. Steve, I'm so grateful for you talking with me today. I'm so grateful for your deep and beautiful biblical fluency, your theological wisdom, for all the work that you've done that's uh, so important. I would commend your books to listeners and um, just grateful to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Refugia, a podcast about renewal. Find us on the web at refugiapodcast.com and leave us a comment. Send us your ideas about what Refugia means for you. You can also find me, Deborah Reenstra, on Facebook and Twitter at Deborah K. Reenstra.